0: Assimilating the rich tradition of yoga in a way that is relevant and evolutionary for today Yoga does not ask you to be more than you are But yoga does ask you to be all that you are And today we have really an expert on yoga, a particular type of yoga joining us And that is Eddie Stern Eddie is a very renowned man in the worldwide community of yoga. Eddie is a yoga teacher, author, and lecturer from New York City. He has been practicing yoga since 1987 and ran his school in Soho from 93 to 2019. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, the school became a focal point for Ashtanga Yoga in New York with an eclectic mix of downtown artists and spiritual seekers practicing and meditating next to well-known personalities like Madonna, Gwyneth Patro, Mike D, and Lou Reed in what was also Manhattan's first consecrated Ganesh temple. Eddie has a passion for seeking out diversity in all aspects of his work and uses a multidisciplinary approach of combining technology, scientific research and collaboration to help further understanding, education and access to yoga. He continues to study philosophy, Sanskrit, ritual, science, and religion, as well as maintain a passion for the daily practice of yoga. Eddie learned Ashtanga Yoga under Sri K. Patabi Joyce and R. Sharat Joyce of Mysore, India, well-known yogic practitioners, and Eddie himself is certainly a well-known Ayurvedic, Ayurvedic, a yogic practitioner in the worldwide community. So today we, we, we kind of just nerd out and just get into the, the geeky parts of yoga and Veda's of which, you know, I can really relate to Eddie, kind of like, I guess he's kind of like me in a few decades, <laughs> so I can relate to him, we have a lot in common, and it was really lovely speaking to him, and by the way, if you're new to the show, welcome to The Vital Veda Show, my name is Dylan Smith, I'm the host of the show, and I get the blessed opportunity to interview absolute experts in the field of health, consciousness, spirituality, of the veda of science the veda is the unity of laws that govern nature and from that we can explore various aspects of the laws of nature whether it's related to medicine like ayurveda or it's related to meditation or yoga like we do today even architecture according to the veda music according to the veda there's so much goodness on this show and if you're new, welcome and check out the other episodes. It's just amazing experts. You know, recently we've been busting the greatest myth of medical history that cholesterol's bad with Dr. Johnny Bowden. And next week we have an episode coming out with Mason Taylor, the founder and director of Superfeast, and we discuss tonic herbalism. And all the authentic herbs of China and traditional or classical Chinese medicine. And then after that, whether it's the fortnight after that, we release once a fortnight or later, we have one of the most important episodes I've ever released on this show. We've got, you know, over, you know, this is the 53rd episode with Eddie Stern. And in a few weeks, we've got one coming out on cancer from diagnosis to empowerment with Dr. Paul Anderson. A fantastic episode with one of the. World's leading integrative oncologists. He has a huge amount of experience with cancer. He's been heavily involved in cancer studies, particularly related to intravenous vitamin C and many things. So, basically, subscribe to the Vital Veda podcast, and if you want knowledge more regularly, check out Vital Veda on Instagram and sign up to our newsletter. That's where we release things like our upcoming online courses on Ayurveda, the essence of Ayurveda. Really. Tapping into the real foundations and not just the superficial medical component of how to treat and how to give recommendations according to the body and the mind and the spirit, but we're looking into the link of Ayurveda to their source, the true source, the connection, the essence of Ayurveda to the Veda. The Veda is those laws that govern nature. Where does Ayurveda arise from? Not just looking at the recommendations and some teachings, but what is the real essence on the subtle layers of healing the physiology, on the foundations of where it came from, the source, and connecting to that on an experiential level, getting a greater, holistic, expansive grasp on this science. And then, really, you will be able to embody Ayurveda, the science of life, and promote perfect health. So, without further ado, we're going to get into this awesome episode. If you appreciate this work, please leave a review and subscribe and share it with a friend. Okay, much love. Welcome, Eddie. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Really excited to have you here. So, I think quite a few of my audience probably have, or like myself, I became to know you from my meditation teacher, Tom Knowles, who you're, you know, have, I think, a beautiful relationship, I can tell by just hearing. And, and yeah, so I recommend to everyone also to check out the Vedic Worldview podcast, hear a couple episodes with Eddie. But Eddie, before we start, ask this question to, to every guest. What did you do this morning? What was your morning routine? What was
1: your dhinacharya? And you can give as much detail as you'd like. Okay, well, I will tell you my Dinacharya, but tell me your Dinacharya first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I woke
0: up in the brahma Mahurta, as usual, which is the time of totality, that time before sunrise um, between, you know, about the Brahman Mahurta is between 3.30 and 5.30 a.m., the time where everything is more towards transcendence. And I woke up at this tonight. Today was about quarter to five in the morning. And I um, woke up, brushed my teeth, scraped my tongue, washed my face, went to the toilet and then sat to meditate for probably an hour or so. And then did self abhyanga, oil massage, walked to the beach, did Surya Namaskar, swam and ran back home to make it in time for you, Eddie.
1: (laughs) So uh, like you, uh, Dylan, I got up in the Brahma Muhurta, I usually get up between 3.15 and 3.30 a.m. Uh, I've been doing that for a long time. I've been getting up that early for about, you know, over 25 years. So uh, that's not a super big deal for me anymore. And it's simply because I start teaching early in the morning. So by 6.30, uh, I'm always teaching my first classes. So I have only a few hours to get all the stuff done in the morning that I want to do for myself. Um, I get up and I brush my teeth and I scrape my tongue, and wash my face and go to the bathroom. And then I make coffee and then I sit and I read for about 20 minutes or so while I drink my coffee. I'm currently reading the Bhagavata Purana, which is a very long um, Purana. Uh, where these are the ancient stories of the Hindu epics. They're also called the Itihasas, which mean once upon a time or as it happened and they start with creation myths and they go through all the different philosophical tenets of Hinduism. Uh, They tell the stories uh, of gods and incarnations and kings and sages and rishis and yogis uh, and all different types of, of teachings. So um, I started reading this. It's about a 14 volume Purana and I I'm trying to read the entire thing in the course of a year. I heard, was told by a friend of mine who gave me this volume that if you read 60 verses a day, by the end of the year, you'll have read the whole thing. So I'm, I'm seeing if that will happen or not, giving it my best shot. Uh, but it's a, I, I like reading something spiritual in the morning. Um, it, it sets the tone for my day. And then after I finish my coffee I and my verses of reading, I take a shower and then I do puja. I've been practicing and following and believing in Hinduism for many years now. So the ritual is usually how I start my day and um then follow that with some japa and meditation. And then after that, I get dressed and I jump on my Vespa and I drive down to the place where I currently do the live streaming of my yoga classes and, uh, then I get my teaching day started. So that's my, that's my morning. Uh, and then also it, depending on the day, like if, if it's a yoga class, I'm teaching where I practice with people, then I wait until, um, 7 a.m. to practice with the class. But if it's a class that I'm only teaching and I'm not practicing with them, then I'll make sure that I get down here by about 5 a.m. So I can practice asanas for about an hour or so before I start teaching.
0: How is your experience reading the Bhagavatam Purana? This, this, well, some people this epic where these f- amazing stories, these historical stories, these legends that you know seem unreal, but they they happen because they were in a different era where all these supernatural, celestial events could occur because there was less stress in the atmosphere, in the universe, as opposed to today in in this age that we call Kali Yuga or the age of ignorance. And yeah, well, how was your experience reading these
1: Puranas? Well, reading the Puranas is always a little bit of a meditation Uh, and meditation in the sense of that it's a quiet time where you become thoughtful or contemplative and you can think about things in a different way. You'll get insights into um, yourself and into nature and philosophy in, in a different type of a way. So I, um, it's a part of the day that I really value. And I've been reading the Hindu texts for a long time. And a lot of them are, are really difficult to understand. So you can read and reread. But somehow the rereading of them has never become boring or repetitive. And a large part, in fact, of the Hindu tradition is repetition. Uh, You repeat things to keep them alive. And as you repeat them and keep them alive, they take on more and more meaning for you until you begin to embody them. So part of the reading and part of the repetition is so that you begin to embody the things that you are repeating and reading and thinking about. And then you slowly become an expression of that level of consciousness. Uh, in the there is a word swadhyaya, which I know you are familiar with, and swadhyaya is often translated as self-reflection or self-study. A little bit of a more traditional view or translation of swadhyaya is the study of sacred texts or the repetition of mantras related to those sacred texts and that you study a little bit every day. Or if you have are born into a family that follows a particular branch of the Vedas, you repeat a certain portion of that Veda every day. And that becomes your Swadhyaya. Beautiful. I
0: I was just going to say, I've I've recently, I mean, not recently, the past few years, I've made part of my dhinacharya, like wake up, meditate, self-abhyanga and Snan, bathing, like those three are like musts. And I've now made part of it is reading some, and I've been reading the ancient Ayurvedic texts, the Shastras, definitely one verse every day. And re- more recently, I've been implementing like at least one chapter of a Purana, something like that. So I love that Swadhyaya.
1: Yeah, it's a really nice way of looking at Swadhyaya. So the Swa means one's own, and Adi, Ayana, means to move firmly towards. So the Swadhyayas from Swa Adhyaya to move firmly towards oneself. And another way of dividing those words up is Swa Adhyaya, and an Adhyaya is a chapter. And the Swa again is the self for oneself. And if you look at all of the Upanishads or the Vedas or the the holy books, they're all broken up into Adhyayas into chapters. And each of those chapters are teachings in different. Forms about the self and about self knowledge and about consciousness. So, uh, all of the the chapters are on swa, on the self. So, swadhyaya is a study of the chapters of the self, and which are the holy texts. And another way that you can look at it is that um, when we look at swadhyaya as self reflection, where we examine ourselves to see, you know, am I behaving in the proper ways? Am I doing the things that are supporting? my progress am i doing the things that are supporting the inner movement of my awareness towards self-understanding and self-unfoldment this is the idea that our entire lives are are basically broken up into chapters and broken up into stories you know i have the cha- we have the chapter of when we're infants and then when we're toddlers and then when we first go to school and then when we enter into the elementary school and Middle school and high school and university and get married and have kids or become sannyasis or whatever. And all of those things are different chapters of our lives, which we can examine and they make up our narrative. And if we become too beholden to the stories that we tell about ourselves and that we create about ourselves, then we're bound to actually probably suffer a little bit more. If we believe the stories about ourselves are true, then we are going to be bound by what we call in the modern parlance is ego. But one of the things that we're doing with yoga is we're trying to undo this false narrative that we're always creating about ourselves to see like, is there a higher narrative? Is there a deeper narrative? Is there a narrative which is a little more true to the essence of my being? So the Swadhyaya is self-reflection is to encourage us to investigate and examine this this narrative uh, or the stories we make up about ourselves, whatever they might be, and and little by little the stories can unravel until we don't have a story other than being. That our only story is is existence. Um, so of course that's not my story. I, I'm not living in 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 a realm of where I have no stories. I have tons of stories. Um, but with swad with swadaya, you're given this tool where you can begin to question you know, your own, your own self narrative. Um, you know, it's like the old saying, don't believe your own press, you know? Um, so, uh, that's another way of looking at Swadhyaya too. So that, that morning reading time is actually a practice of Swadhyaya. And when you read the holy texts in that man- manner, they cause you to reflect on yourself too. So you can begin to examine how, am I constructing a healthy, integrated narrative about me? Or am I, being delusional about something,
0: and I guess reading these these other narratives, then your you know life you start to invite that in and expand the potential for your own narrative. Yeah, and, for
1: sure, for sure.
0: And I just want to say just quickly my experience because it's when I read these Puranas, these these epics, it's not such an intellectual process of like, okay, what does this mean? It's actually for those who have never read a Purana. Or, or or any epics, it's it's like it's bloody awesome stories. Like these stories have like amazing like sex and killing and like. It's so vivid, and and just enjoying the stories, and that then that and then I find while I am reading that for if I am reading one on Mother Divine, like the Devi Purana, the, the Mother Divine aspect of consciousness. While I was reading that, I was just enjoying all this Devi energy, and and a lot of Mother Divine was dominant in my life. So it kind of spontaneously happens just by enjoying it.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's a very good point to make. That when we're looking at these Puranas. Uh, reading them and studying them. We don't need to be using our logical mind to understand them. Just like read, read the story, read the, the, the recounting of what happened and, uh, and enjoy it. Let it soak in. And every once in a while you, you understand something on a subtle level that you didn't understand before and it changes you. So yeah, that was a very nice point
0: beautiful so i just want to go into your journey exploring yoga i mean it's it's funny listening to you or interesting rather listening to you and even people like krishna das and ram das you know it's a few generations before my generation of exploring india and exploring you know the vedic tradition the yogic tradition i kind of it seems like obviously it was less modern then but it seems like i mean how was your experience in india in regards to Saints, and it seems like there was less ignorance. I mean, it was like at the age, the beginning of this kind of age of enlightenment we see within the Kali Yoga, which started in somewhere in the seventies. So, I, you know, even Ram saying he met someone who was two hundred and fifty years old, and I know these kind of people are still around. They're just, you know, I guess more harder to find with the density we currently live life in today. But yeah, how was your experience going to India, finding yoga, and did you meet any, you know, mystical? Supernatural people and experiences.
1: Okay, so um, I'm going to answer your question, and I don't want to sound terribly annoying or overbearing when I answer it. But these are these are just going to be some of my opinions on this, and they've been formed over over a number of years. And the one of the things has to do with modernity, on modern ages, and the idea that. Like every age that we live in is the most modern it's ever been in the history of our time on this planet. So this moment that we're living in right now, you and I here talking through a microphone, you in Australia, me in New York City with nothing but a computer interface and some wireless technology. That's the most modern it's ever been for people like you and me. There's never been a time before this where these things were possible like this in the way it is. So we're at the cutting edge of the end of time right now because there is no time in front of us. There's only this time that there is right now. We assume that there's going to be some more time after this moment, but we have no idea, no way of really knowing uh, how much more time there will be. Uh, or even if time exists in the linear fashion that we think that it does. So in 1988, when I first went to India, on that day, when I first went to India, that was the most modern time that existed in the history of my experience of the world or, or anyone's. Like There was no more modern time than there was on that day in 1988. And the same was true for Ram Das when he went to India in 1969. There was everything was as modern as it had ever been. And they had no idea back then what to expect of the future and how that would change. So for the Westerners who went to India, you know what they experienced at that time in India was, of course, different than what it was like for them in the West. But even in the West, by any standards, things were pretty good. I mean, the um, World War II and the austerities of World War II had finished. And of course, there was the Korean War and Vietnam and the atrocities that were occurring from those wars and the student uprisings and the anti-war protests, et cetera, et cetera. But by the 1960s, when, you know, late 1960s, when Ram Dass went to India, you know, they already had LSD. And that was what got him fired from Harvard. And LSD was a pretty modern drug at that time. Like you could take it and experience reality and have hallucinations like no other substance would give you. So they thought they were pretty cutting edge, which they were. There was nothing more cutting edge than what they were doing back then. Uh, And they went to India with with that feeling and with that knowledge. And so when you start doing yoga, when anyone starts doing yoga, especially if they're coming to it and it changes them on a deeper level, like in a spiritual way, for example, or on an emotional way. And all of a sudden the world is a new place through your eyes because of the things that have cleared away or woken up in you. That's a pretty special thing. And when that occurs, it is the same experience that, you know, a new student of mine might have last week or I had in 1988 or Ram Dallas had in 1969. It's the same feeling. It's the same experience. Uh, And this is one of the amazing things about the continuity of yoga that we all come to it when in whatever time or whatever age we come to it, but many of the things we experience are very, very similar. The, the feeling of inner freedom, of inner knowing, of inner confidence, of stability, of being grounded, of being open, forgiving, loving. We all experience these same things. So that's not bound by time and it's not bound by space. It's carried by yoga. So to say that india in 19 in the 1980s was better than it is now would be to hold on to or to constrict the timeless and spacelessness of yoga to a time and space because i was there that would be to create a narrative around the specialness of that time and place and that i thought it was special because i was the one who was there or for for any of us you know what i mean so to say old is like old is gold is quite often what you see is, you know, people might say, oh, it was so much better in India before this, that, or the other. Well, maybe for you, but not for the people who go there today because they're having the same experience that we did such a long time ago. But maybe now there's internet, but that's okay because internet is normal for you now. So it's it doesn't detract from the experience while you're there. So, you know, I don't like to wax poetic about my time in India, because even now when I go to India, I love it as much as I did when I first went there. It's the same country to me, but frankly, it's easier to get around. It's easier to communicate. And um, there's a lot more facility that makes things not so difficult, but it's still India. And the richness of of the country, the richness of the religion and spirituality and of the, the knowledge and the devotion is as present as ever. And I honestly don't think that that has changed in the modern age. Uh, Not that I've experienced it. Uh, Maybe there's just more of it. So that's my, those are my feelings. And, you know, I apologize if, if it, if, if that's not a great answer or if it's an annoying answer, but it's just what I feel. It's what I believe. Uh, That's how I feel about India. And that's how I feel about Yoga. And uh, I mean, when I first studied with uh, the teacher, I, I had a few different teachers in India and I studied with one teacher named Patabi Choice for about 18 or 19 years. And when I first went there, there were times when there were only, you know, two or three people there. And yeah, that was a special time. But if you happened to go there when there were a hundred people there, it was still a special time and you would learn exactly the things that, that you would need to learn. So and, and people would come away with, you know, the same knowledge or the same groundedness and practice that we might have had 20 or 30 years ago. So um, I think that we all have a tendency to, to think, oh, if I had been there earlier, I would have seen it before. There were a million people doing yoga over there and it would have been so much better. And uh and now I would be so much more advanced. That's usually why we say those things. We think, oh, I'd be so much more advanced now if I'd been there before when it was like, you know, I would be the only one with a few people. But all that's a story. It's just a fallacy. Uh we go when we go, mm-hmm. no, we learn when we learn, and we have the same experience. Because you know what? Existence exists. And when you tap into like existence or truth or deep experience of yourself, that's always gonna be there no matter what the age is. And And the sages and rishis have been talking about the mind for thousands of years in the same way. You know, Vyasa said over 2,000 years ago that there are five basic states of mind. You can have a fully distracted mind, a fully obsessed or deluded mind. You can have a semi-distracted mind where you can pay attention for a little while and be focused sometime. You can have a very concentrated mind or you can have a mind which is completely still so no thoughts arise. That's the same mind that we're talking about today as he was talking about a couple thousand years ago. So honestly, not that much has changed about us as as human beings. The only thing which has changed are the things that we've created. And a lot of those things are pretty cool because now you and I can have a conversation a half a world apart and, you know, feel like we're sitting next to each other.
0: Yeah. And that's a great answer. I guess that all these different time periods are different expressions of yoga or the truth. And what is one of your favorite places to visit in India or your favorite place that you've been?
1: Uh, one of my favorite places in India is Gangotri, um, which is a small temple, holy place, about 18 kilometers below where the Ganga flows out from Gomuk. I just love it there so much. It's such a, mm. it's a peaceful place. It's a beautiful place. A sense of nature and of divinity is so powerful there. I really love it. And... There are a lot of temples in India that I just find to be beautifully moving places. But for some reason, Gangotri really stands out as a place that was particularly quiet, secluded, and inward. I mean, one of my favorite Ganesha temples is about three and a half or actually about six hours outside of Bombay. And it's called Siddhatek. And it's a, yeah. it's a Ganesha temple on a small island. And to me, it is a place where I've gone in there. I feel like I'm in an ancient, timeless space. I really love it there. Huh. Those are I'm two of my add, favorites.
0: Yeah, great. I'm going to add the Siddhatek to my pilgrim pilgrimage list. Well, you, know, you can there's... go on.
1: Yeah, you can go on the Ashtavinayaka Yatra, the eight um, important Ganesh mm. temples of Maharashtra, and so you can do all of those temples in about three or four days. And that's one of the eight important temples of Maharashtra.
0: Yes, you know, for for me these days, and I'm sure it's the same with with Eddie. When I, I used to, you know, when I started going in India as a teenager or a late teenager, you know, was doing for travel and just uh, enjoying nature and a bit of party. But now it's just it's yatra, it's pilgrimage. You know, I I go to these holy places such as Gangotri and just to let the listeners know gomuk which he mentioned is is the source of of ganga where the ganges river starts in the himalayas at the glacier where it starts and it is such a powerful place so yeah you you mentioned that you're hindu and you or well, you're practicing hinduism you are also you know born jewish and i've also heard you mention you know you honor the jewish tradition i have also grew up jewish never really uh, I kind of actually have a bit of a slight resilience to it. I I know that there's beauty behind it because I've heard of my friends bring up Kabbalah teachings that are very resonant with what I resonate with, which is the Vedic, the laws of nature. And I can see every tradition is part of that law of nature. How do you today integrate Judaism to your Vedic and Hindu practice?
1: Well... I have um, a rabbi who I study with, and I'm very inspired by the teachings that he gives and the way that he communicates about meaning uh, in life according to Judaism. But the pull which is inside of me is towards Hinduism, and it has been for a long time. I feel at home. In Hindu temples, I feel at home with the chanting of mantras and the offering of puja. And, you know, my teachers who I've studied with have encouraged me and taught me things and said that they felt that I could and should do these things. And so I I do them. You know, some people say you cannot convert to Hinduism. You have to be born a Hindu. Other people say that you can convert to Hinduism. Other people say that you can only be born a Hindu, but that anyone can practice Hinduism. And these are all differing viewpoints from Hindus themselves. So, you know, to say I'm a Hindu, to say I'm, I'm Jewish, to say, you know, I'm anything is, um, you know, uh, honestly, I, I like to worship. I have, I'm a very religious person. Uh, I have faith. I have my beliefs. And um, if someone wants to say I'm Hindu, then that's fine. If someone wants to say I'm not Hindu, then that's fine too. If someone wants to say that I'm Jewish, then that's also fine. They can say whatever they want. And, you know. But I, I, I think that the important thing is that if you are of a different religion practicing, quote unquote, someone else's religion, That we need to do it with a lot of respect and a lot of humility and do things the best we can and not offend anyone and, you know, try not to uh, appropriate things and be culturally sensitive. So there's a lot of that which is built into the question of, am I Hindu or not? You know, some people say, yeah, obviously you're Hindu. And some people say, no, you're, you can't be Hindu. You're born Jewish. You know everyone is going to have a different opinion based on what belief systems they hold to, and um honestly, like that's not the discussion that i I want to have. Religion is a personal thing as long as you're not inflicting harm on people or trying to force people to believe what you believe, then people should be free to practice what they what they're drawn to, and in the Hindu tradition itself, it says that you can only come to do something if you have the samskara for it. If you don't have the samskara, then you won't be drawn to it. So by the tradition itself, it should be clear that if any of the Western people or you know, white people or brown people or black people who come to do the practice of yoga or Hinduism, we come to it because we have a samskara. There's something in us which is drawing us to it. And therefore, If we are initiated by the proper authorities and they give us their permission to do it, then we can do those things, at least according to the tradition, some parts of the tradition. So um, honestly, it it gets tiring for everyone, you know, if that's the way that we have to, to look into it. But as long as you're not hurting anyone and as long as you're being respectful and humble about the things that you're doing and you're using these practices in the right way, then let people do what where their heart you know draws them and, um, and try not to judge or, or start arguments. And if you are, then maybe there's a reason for that. And that's the thing that needs to be discussed rather than, you know, putting people down for the beliefs that they have, the practices they have. You know, we need a new collective narrative. Um, when I was talking about the stories before, it's because we we need a new collective narrative to the human race about how we do things and why we do things and what we judge people for doing or, you know, how there's so much negativity and and accusations, even in the yoga world of practitioners. It's you know that we need some new narratives, and it's up to each generation to help create what that new narrative is. So I'm sorry if I've gone off on on a little bit of a tangent, but you know the the question about Hinduism is a, is a very it requires as a, as a Western born person practicing Hinduism or being a Hindu that it's not so important what my views are on it. Uh, the things that are important are what the tradition holds and to understand what the tradition holds is the job of a practitioner to understand what does the tradition say. And, and that's my job as someone who engages in these things to listen, to understand, to read, to study, not to worry about my own opinions about these things. Uh, and then a lot of the different traditions are going to hold different viewpoints. So what you do is whatever the tradition is that you happen to be following, then that's the viewpoint that you accept, um, why? Because it's supposed to relieve you from suffering and, and move you towards some type of, uh understanding, liberation, self-knowledge, et cetera. Um, so even with India, there's, you know, debate in between different opposing viewpoints is a, is a big part of the tradition and it has been for thousands of years. So my job as a practitioner is to understand what does the tradition say Uh, Specifically, what does the tradition say of the tradition that I'm following? And then follow along with that with humility, respect, appreciation, awe, and and not condemn or judge or attack other people whose viewpoints might be different, as long as they're not causing harm to other people. I appreciate
0: that that came up because this greater harmony within the diverse world we live in is definitely required. Eddie, you mentioned before your projects of working with perhaps those who are less privileged or those who who really could do with some yoga. What are your current projects at the moment, and in
1: your intention
0: where you're putting your
1: energy? So let's see. Right now, you know, we created this app called the Breathing App, and this is a guided um, paced breathing. It's a free app, and it reduces stress and anxiety. It's helpful for, um, for cardiac function. It, um, can be useful for sleep and a number of other things. So we created that one to, um, you know, just put out there for people who don't have time for longer practices, or maybe they have a minute where they can do some deep breathing in an elevator, or if they're doctors or, you know, first responders, or they're living in areas that are, um, stressful or whatever. And, um, and they don't have access to, to, to longer or in-person practices, the breathing practices can be really helpful. So that was one thing we did. The other app I have out is called yoga 365. And, um, this is one minute practices every day for a year And this is also really easy access movement basically is like not a lot of yoga poses in there. And the ones that we do have are simple and accessible. So this is something really geared towards, again, beginning level people who want to begin doing some yoga, but they don't have time for a 20 minute class or a one hour class any day of the week, but they do have one minute to give themselves. So uh, that was the second app we created. It just came out in January. That one's not free. Um, but um, it's not terribly expensive. We have a program called the Urban Yogis where we train young adults from um, high gun violence prone areas, uh, specifically in Queens is where we work and in Brooklyn. And we teach young adults who live in those areas how to be yoga and meditation teachers. And then we try to help find them work either in public schools You know, when public schools were opened pre-COVID or online or in yoga schools, teaching people the practices that they've learned. So basically, it's a way of teaching individuals from those areas how to be leaders in their communities and bring the practices of yoga and meditation to high stress environments uh, where and also environments where there are no yoga or meditation studios. We've been doing that for about eight years. That's something that I helped to formulate with Deepak Chopra and a woman named Erica Ford, who works out of Queens on gun reduction violence programs. And um, so those are some of the things. There are a couple of other nonprofits that I work with, and we've done a lot of work in public education over the past 20 years to train teachers how to teach simple wellness practices in the classroom for Classroom management and before testing and stuff like that, but those are some of the main things. Right now, we're working on simple breathing and movement practices for rehabilitation for people who have been suffering and recovering from COVID. That's in early stages of work, and um, we're doing that very, very carefully. And um, and that's that. You know, I have my my yoga classes that I teach every day online, and those are free or by donation. So we have people tuning in from Iran and from Kazakhstan and. Venezuela and all over the place every day. And those are places where they can't pay U.S. dollars for a yoga class or maybe they can't even donate because they can't use a credit card online for America. So that's been a really nice experience as well. And now we're giving away the Yoga 365 app to healthcare workers and first responders as sort of a one-for-one one thing. So every app we sell, we're, we're giving a, a free one to a healthcare worker, and we're focusing on people who are working in COVID situations. So, And that's been really nice to do also because those Healthcare workers, doctors and nurses and emergency room workers are so stressed out right now and they have so little time for themselves. That, I mean, I hope that they can even find one minute to do some of the breathing that comes along with the Yoga 365 app. And we've had some nice responses so far. So those are some of the things we do.
0: So many beautiful projects, Eddie. It's fantastic. And how do people find, if they want to do your daily online yoga class, how can they find that out?
1: eddystern.com.
0: Okay. Cool. And lastly, Eddie, if we can quickly end with you telling us your favorite or one of your favorite shlokas, Vedic hymn.
1: Well, let's see. How about yoga kuru karmani sangam Chakthwa dhananjaya siddhya-asidhyo-samobhutva, Samatwam yoga Uchite. So yoga kuru karmani being established in yoga sangam tyaktwa dhananjaya give up the attachments to the results of your actions sadiya Asidya sadiya asadiya samobutwa having become the same mentally towards success and failure samatvam yoga uchete. that evenness of mind is said to be yoga so this is krishna lord krishna speaking to arjuna in the battlefield in the bhagavad gita And he says to him that, you know, we have no choice in our lives but to perform action. But when we perform actions, we do things and we expect a particular outcome, it's going to lead to more suffering. So do the things that you have to do. Don't expect any particular outcome to them. Just do them fully with your whole being. And when you do that, you won't be so concerned with having success and you won't be worried about failure. Which sometimes paralyzes us, and that evenness of mind that we have to action is called yoga. Beautiful. We'll
0: link in the show notes that verse if people want to look into it again.
1: I believe it's it's two forty six or two forty eight, chapter two, verse forty six or forty eight. It might be forty
0: eight. I think it is. Well, Eddie, thanks for this fun conversation getting a bit vedic and it's nice to always you know we have doctors who on this podcast who've never heard of the veda and we will have a full science conversation so it's nice to explore some of the veda and the yoga tradition
1: well thank you for having me on and um i feel like i was uh, maybe um uh was ranting a little bit about some of my feelings on um the times that people go to india and over dramatize their experiences there or the stuff about hinduism but um yeah, all this stuff is on my mind quite a lot. And I, I feel that, you know, in creating the, this uh, a new narrative that the world obviously needs also around spirituality is not to like, you know, we just need to be really simple about these things. We need to be practical and simple and, and not think we're so special because we do yoga or because we meditate or anything like that. And a, a lot of times in the yoga world, you can see in not just in The age of social media, but always it. Sometimes there's like this feeling that we get where we think we're special because we do this thing, or we're better than other people because we do these practices. And that's just not the case. So we need to always be wary of that narrative of specialness that comes around because we do a spiritual practice. We're not special because of it. It's just something that we do. And if it's not making us better people, and if we're not being helpful to the people around us, then, you know, it's not really working.
0: I love that. Like sometimes, right, the janitor who works at the school is maybe enlightened and then they've never heard of
1: yoga or veda. Well, let's close with a story um, about the rabbi in the temple who one day is overwhelmed by emotion and he goes running up to the ark and he says, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Oh, Lord God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And then another rabbi, he gets swept up with emotion and he goes running up and he throws himself in front of the ark and he says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Oh, Lord, I'm not worthy. And then the janitor of the synagogue, he gets all wrapped up in the emotion (laughs) and he comes running over and he throws himself in front of the ark. Oh, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And then one of the rabbis nudges the other and says, look who thinks he's not worthy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. simplicity right yeah you know, all right okay. thank you dylan
1: thanks a lot thanks, i appreciate you. you having me on thanks eddie bye peace
0: Thank you for joining us. Remember, check out the show notes. If you go to au. click learn and podcast. We have detailed show notes of every episode. Sometimes we expand and and talk about more aspects, you know, which we didn't talk about in the episode. And for example, for this episode, under resources section, you'll find all Eddie's amazing offerings. This isn't amazing, all the things he's all the projects he's engaging in to really... Enhance the the health of societies, and we we have links to all of them and more information on all of them. Check out the show notes of every episode. Remember to check out all the other episodes, and if you appreciate the show, leave a review. Do take action on giving and contributing to the evolving progress of yoga and Veda and peace on earth, heaven on earth, and when you contribute this is when reciprocation happens and it's doing a it few as well as supporting the show but primarily for you just that giving anyway until next time thanks for joining me this is the vital vader podcast and much love <laughs>